If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Genesis chapter 48. We come now to the last three chapters of the book of Genesis. And in these last three chapters, Moses is going to be drawing to a close the time of the patriarchs. It started with Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and now it ends with Jacob, the death of Jacob. Now what comes to an end here is not Israel. This is just the beginning of this very important nation, this critical people that God has chosen But what does come to an end here is the story of Israel's beginnings, the story of the beginning of this nation as told through the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. So at this point, Jacob is a very old man. As we learned at the end of chapter 47 last week, Jacob is now 147 years old. He migrated down to Egypt to escape the famine in Canaan because God had provided a means of provision through his son Joseph miraculously, providentially in Egypt. And he migrated down there when he was 130 years old. And now he's lived another 17 years in the land of Goshen, this land that God had providentially provided for he and his family to survive the famine. And what we have in this morning's chapter and next week's chapter as well, chapter 49, is a couple of scenes of Jacob on his deathbed. Now admittedly, this deathbed scene is quite a bit protracted. It actually begins all the way back in chapter 47. The last three verses of chapter 47 really is a part of Jacob's deathbed scenario or scene. And it extends all the way to the end of chapter 49. But chapters 48 and 49 specific, specifically focus on one particular aspect of this deathbed scene. And that is of him pronouncing blessings on his sons. Chapter 48, he pronounces blessings over Joseph's sons, who become his sons. And in chapter 49, next week, we'll look at Jacob as he pronounces blessings over his own 12 sons. And that'll be a fascinating study next week as we look at Jacob pronouncing these blessings over his sons and these these blessings that he pronounces over them in the next chapter will have a a prophetic tone to them. And we're going to get to see and look forward and see how God brings fulfillment to those prophetic blessings to each of those 12 tribes. But that's next week. This week in chapter 48, We're going to see Jacob do two things specifically. Number one, we're going to see him perform a formal adoption ceremony where he adopts Joseph's sons as his own. And then we're going to see him perform a blessing ceremony where he then subsequently blesses those sons whom are now his. But how he goes about it and why he goes about it is going to teach us something very important about faith. How to live by faith. And what a mature faith looks like. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us what faith is. He defines it. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction 
of things not seen. Now, there are a lot of things that we hope for. We hope to remain healthy. We hope that the economy will return and be healthy again. We hope to remain employed and have a source of income. We hope that the Atlanta Falcons will beat the New Orleans Saints this afternoon. Or some of us do. But those kinds of hopes are are not biblical hopes. They're, They're more of what we might call wishful thinking. Oh, I hope I will remain healthy in this pandemic. Oh, 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 I hope that I will stay employed. And oh, I I really hope that the Falcons will beat the Saints this afternoon. But we have no assurance of that, especially this year. Any of those things, really. And so they are not biblical hope. Biblical hope is different. The writer of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So it's not about wishful thinking, but confident assurance that these things will, in fact, happen. We have faith that they are certainties, though they haven't happened yet, though we don't see them, right? They are unseen to us, yet we have a conviction that they are certainties. We're convinced of it. That's what faith is. And here at the end of his life, This old man, Jacob, is going to show us what it looks like to have a mature faith, a faith that has been honed by years and years of sharpening, a faith that has been tested in the furnace of affliction. So Jacob shows us not only what that faith looks like, but what it looks like to both live and die by that faith. So may the Lord use the reading and explanation of his word this morning to build and mature in us that kind of faith as well. So this morning I want to do something a little bit different than we typically do. Typically I read an entire portion of scripture and then seek to explain it and then bring application to it. This morning, this text lends itself more to me kind of reading and explaining my way through it. And so if you'll bear with me, I want to I read and explain our way through chapter 48 together and then seek to interpret that and apply that to our lives when we're done. So if, we're taking, if you're taking notes, there are three sections to this chapter. The first four verses are where Jacob recalls the covenant promises of God. And and he's going to hearken back to that scene from chapter 35 when he came back from Paddan Aram after being basically in exile in Paddan Aram for over 20 years. He finally has come back to the land of Canaan and he meets with God at Bethel. God meets with him, appears to him, and he gives him the covenant promises. And in this moment, at his deathbed, he recalls those promises. And that's going to be critical to us. Really, for, remaining, for understanding the remainder of the chapter. That's the first four verses. And then in verses 5 through 12, Jacob is going to adopt two of Joseph's sons. Now, Joseph has had many more sons in the ensuing 17 years in Egypt. He's continued to have children. But his first two sons that were born to him in Egypt will now be adopted by his father, their grandfather, Jacob. 
Ephraim and Manasseh, his first two sons, will be adopted by Jacob. And then in verses 13 through 22, we have this formal blessing ceremony where the patriarch Jacob blesses his sons. And so um, we're going to read and explain our way through the text, but I want us to go to the Lord in prayer first and ask him to bless this time. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. We thank you for providentially breathing these words out through your spirit into human authors and preserving them throughout the ages such that we can know that what we hold in our hands to be your very breath, your words. And so, Father, we ask that that the reading of your words and, Lord, my explanation of them would first of all be honoring and glorifying to you, and secondly, a blessing and encouragement, a challenge to each of us this morning. I pray, Father, in faith that that my attempts to bring explanation to your precious words would not in any way detract from them, and that everything that comes out of my mouth, Father, would would be in accordance with your word, and if if it's not, may it fall on deaf ears. And Father, we ask that we would walk away from our time this morning in your word, not just being more intelligent about what it says and what it means, but that you would, through the reading and explanation of your word, that you would conform us to the image of Jesus, that we'd look more like him, that our faith would mature so that you might be glorified in your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 48, again, the first four verses are where Jacob recalls these covenant promises. It says, After this, Jacob was told, Behold, your father is ill. Time out for just a second. Now, Jacob needs, Joseph needs to be told this because he's not there. As the second in command of Egypt, he's probably down south in the capital city of ancient Egypt, which is Memphis, doing kingdom work working for Pharaoh. So he's not there. And and so word comes to him that his father is ill. Now, he's already kind of been at at Jacob's side at the end of chapter 47 because it looked like he was going to die. And and at that point, Jacob made him promise, Joseph, when I die, make sure that you take my bones to Canaan to fulfill those promises. It was was a prophetic looking forward to how God is going to give the land of Canaan to his offspring. And he made that promise, but somehow, uh, apparently, Jacob revived enough, but he's still an old man, and now he becomes ill. Word comes to Joseph that his father is sick, and he knows that this is the end, and so what does he do? Verse, uh, verse, verse one, so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Again, these are his two oldest sons. He has other sons, as we'll see later, but these are his two oldest sons, and he presumably is bringing his two oldest sons to his father so that he might bless them. So he might extend to them the the blessing of the patriarch, his father. Verse 2, And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And so Israel here, remember 
Jacob has been renamed Israel. At that scene in chapter 35, when, when God gave him those covenant promises, he says, no longer shall you be called Jacob. From now on, you shall be called Israel. And, and we've seen that back and forth. Sometimes he's referred to as Jacob. Sometimes he's referred to as Israel. But note here that Moses tells us that Jacob is sick and weak and in bed. But Israel, he summons his faith and he sits up in bed. This is the Israel of faith. And so Israel, Jacob, knows that this is an important meeting with Manasseh and Ephraim as Joseph brings his son to him. And so he he summons his strength and he sits up in bed. And then he speaks to Joseph. And and, and these are the the, the covenant promises that God gave him from chapter 35. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan and bless me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and I will give you this land to to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So again, Jacob is referencing that meeting with God at Bethel after he had returned from Paddan Aram after being with Uncle Laban and, and, and laboring under him and his deception for over 20 years. Now he's back from that and he meets with God at Bethel. God, and he says, God Almighty appears to me. If we went back to chapter 35, the reason why he refers to the Lord here as God Almighty is because that's how God introduced himself in that setting. He says, I am God Almighty. And so Jacob says here, God Almighty appeared to me. He he revealed himself to me, and he blessed me, Jacob says. He appeared to me, and he blessed me. Now, how how did the God of Jacob bless Jacob? He blessed him by giving him the covenant promises. That was how God blessed Jacob, by giving him the promises. And the promises are, as he lists them here, the promise of offspring, the promise that you will have many offspring. At that point, he said, "As, as many as the dust of the earth... Uh, from the north, they will spread abroad to the north, the south, the east, the west. From you will come a, a, a nation and a company of nations, a company of peoples, he says. Now, he's got a big family here, but, but this is a promise of an entire nation coming from you. But it's not just a promise of offspring. The promise of blessing, the covenant promises include the promise of land. And, and, and Jacob, at that point, uh, back in, at Bethel, he recalled how 20 years earlier God had promised, I'm going to bring you back to here. After you go to Pananaram, I'm going to bring, bring you back here. And, and now at Bethel, he, he, is, he is rejoicing. He's thanking God. He has brought me back to the land of Canaan. He has fulfilled that promise. And, and so now Jacob is recalling this. And just in your mind's eye, Kind of place the setting here. He's on his deathbed. He's about to, to adopt and bless Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons. And what motivates all of that is the promise of God. He remembers the promises of God. And they fuel everything that happens after this. They fuel his obedience to do what God has called him to do. It's noteworthy that he recalls these covenant promises prior to adopting and blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. As if these promises and his faith in them are the reason for his actions which follow. And what follows, 
are a formal adoption ceremony and a formal blessing ceremony. So first in verses 5 through 12 is the, the adoption ceremony. Verse 5 says, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. And so this is Jacob. And this ceremony that we see here is is very similar to almost a, a wedding ceremony. At the beginning of a wedding ceremony or towards the beginning of a wedding ceremony, before the vows are taken... There is a declaration of intent. Many of you might even not even know that that's what that is. Do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully... That is a declaration of intent. Yes, I intend to marry this person and this person. This is Jacob declaring his intent to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph wanted this. This is why he brought them to him. He wanted this to happen. He knew how important this was. He he knew the covenant promises of God were were critical and that his children will now be heirs of those promises. And so he wants this. It's not as though he's fighting against this. He wants this to happen. And what we learn here is that Ephraim and Manasseh are replacing Reuben and Simeon as the firstborn sons. Reuben is being passed over as he's, he's the true firstborn. He's Jacob's first son by Leah. But he's being passed over because of his sin of, of laying with his father's concubine back in chapter 35. In fact, the writer of 1 Chronicles tells us explicitly that's exactly why Reuben is passed over as the firstborn because of his sin with the concubine. Simeon is probably passed over because of his violence done to the men of Shechem. He kills, he along with Levi, kill the men of Shechem in response to them having violated their sister Dinah. And and if you recall what Jacob said after that happened, that their response in violence brought reproach on him, brought reproach on Jacob. And so uh, perhaps they're passed over because of that. But Whatever the reason is, Ephraim and Manasseh are now replacing Reuben and Simeon as firstborns of Jacob. And and then what we see in in verse 7 here is that this this recollection of this meeting, uh, Jacob's meeting with God at Bethel and the giving of the covenant promises, coupled with now seeing his grandsons by way of Joseph, recalls to Jacob's mind his grieving over Joseph's mother who died, his beloved Rachel, who died around the same time. Look at verse 7. It says, As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. There's your Christmas tie-in to the passage this morning. That was Bethlehem. So perhaps what this means is that part of Jacob's rationale for promoting only his grandsons by way of Joseph to be his own sons is because of Jacob's status as the favorite son. 
and subsequently his mother, Rachel, as his favorite wife. But even if that's true, we know that God was sovereign over the elevation of Manasseh and Ephraim to be sons of Israel. Now the formal ceremony of the adoption begins there in verse 8. Look at what he says. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now that's a strange thing for him to ask, right? Why would he ask who they are if he's already named them in verse 5? They are Ephraim and Manasseh, your two oldest sons. Why would he now ask who are these? This has led some commentators to question whether or not Moses is telling this story chronologically, that perhaps the first seven verses actually occurred earlier in the story in those 17 years, and then this adoption ceremony happened later. But I don't think we have to arrive at that conclusion. I think what we have here is, again, this is a, this is a formal ceremony of adoption. It's kind of like, again, to the wedding ceremony when the father of the bride escorts the bride to the front, the preacher asks, what? Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Now, when I officiate weddings and I ask that question, it's not because I'm curious about what that guy's name is, that, that I don't know him and that I must know him before we continue. That's not the purpose of asking that question. The purpose is symbolic, right? There is a symbolic giving away of the bride, and the father asks, uh, answers, her mother and I do, or, or I do, or however he answers, and then he symbolically joins the hand of his daughter to the groom. So symbolically, you're, you're leaving my household, and you're, now you're becoming a part of a new household. It's not as though we're trying to find out the name of the guy. And so the same thing happens here. Who are these? It's a part of this ceremony. And, and Joseph says to him in response, verse 9, He said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Jacob said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And so, uh, again, we see this intent to bless them. um, And this formal uh, adoption ceremony begins. And And it's almost right there at verse 10. It's almost as if Moses interjects this emotional pause here. And he says, now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. So Moses is interjecting what happens in the story here. He's interrupting the, the, the reciting of the ceremony. And he, he says there's this, there's this emotional embrace where the grandfather embraces and kisses his grandsons who are now becoming his own sons and it's part of this ceremony and and grandfather he 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 kisses them he embraces them and he's overcome with gratitude look at verse 11 and Israel said to Joseph I never expected to see your face and behold God has let me see your offspring also and so he's he's overcome with thankfulness and gratitude um, that I, I never even expected to see you again not, not because he can't see, right? He's, he's, he's blind. He can't see. But he didn't expect to see Joseph again because he thought Joseph was dead, remember? He, th- he thought Joseph was gone. He'd been, he'd been torn up by animals. He said, I never expected to even see you again. And now God has let me see, not with my eyes, but with my heart, my soul, my being. 
God has let me be in the presence of not just you, but my grandsons, your offspring as well. And so then in verse 12, it says, Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. So this is the conclusion of the adoption ceremony. He takes them from, from his father's knees. Now, we do have to explain that, okay, you're wondering, he's a 147-year-old man. He's bedridden. How does he have these boys on his knees? And by the way, these aren't children. These are 20-year-old young men. Um, this is symbolic here. This was part of the adoption ceremony. When, when, when a man adopted a, a child, the child would be placed on the father's knee. Again, symbolically, this is now your father. You are now his son. And so this is symbolically, the, the Hebrew here is that he was next to his knees. He probably wasn't sitting on, the, on their knees. But this was part of the ceremony uh, of saying, Ephraim and Manasseh, this is now your father. You are now heirs of Israel, of Jacob, and you are his sons. So he removes them from his father, and then it says that he bowed himself with his face to the earth. The he there is Joseph. So Joseph takes his sons from his knees, and then he bows down and, and, and he, with his face to the ground. He bows himself. Commentators say that, that what Joseph is doing here is he's making a formal request of his father to now bless his sons. Now that they are yours, now extend. Before you extend your patriarchal blessing to your 12 sons, who are yours by birth, which will happen in chapter 49, before you do that, bless these whom now you have made formally a part of Israel, one of the tribes of Israel. And so this is Joseph asking for that, and so that is exactly what happens. Then we move now to verses 13 through 22, which is Jacob blessing Joseph's sons, the formal ceremony of blessing. Look at verse 13 and 14. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And so Jacob mixes things up. It was tradition. It was the cultural norm of that day that the firstborn was the one who gets the blessing of the right hand. But Jacob does this thing. He switches things up on them, and he puts his right hand on the wrong one. He puts his right hand on the secondborn and his left hand on the firstborn. And then he blesses them, verses 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph. Note that he's, he's blessing Joseph here by blessing his sons. These are his sons here. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Then when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. 
he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so again, we see this pattern that we've seen over and over in Genesis, that the younger, the older will serve the younger. We saw it with Isaac and Ishmael. We saw it with, with uh, Jacob and Esau. We saw it with Joseph and his brothers. And now we see it once again with Ephraim and Manasseh, that the older will serve the younger. And then Jacob finishes with a personal word to Joseph, verse 20 through the end of the chapter. So he blessed them that day, saying, but you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, what does all of this mean? What is, what is, what is our takeaway from a passage of Scripture like this? Is, just, is this just a nice story about Jacob's deathbed? Are we supposed to just learn from this about the formalities of adoption ceremonies and blessing ceremonies in the ancient Near East? No, again, we know that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we know that there's something much more here than just uh, learning about these ceremonies and how they happen. We know that there is something here to encourage us and challenge us in our, in our faith. And so, as we've done often, we need to go back to the original audience. To whom did Moses originally intend this story to be read to and to be read by? Well, it was the Hebrews in the wilderness wanderings. The Israelites who, 430 years after this setting... 430 years later, they're in the Sinai Peninsula, having been rescued by God out of slavery in Egypt. They're within a generation, they're within 40 years of entering into the promised land. We don't know exactly when in those 40 years of wilderness wanderings Moses wrote this book, but he wrote it during that time. So somewhere in that time, they, they were reading this. Now, what would they have taken away from this story. Well, first, they would have taken serious note of Jacob's recollection, his recalling of the covenant promises. That would have been a big deal to them because those promises were still in play for them. They were, at that time, they were a nation. They came out of Egypt some three, four million strong. And so that part of the prophecy had come true. God had made them into a nation, a company of peoples, but they weren't yet in the promised land. They weren't yet returned to Canaan. And so these promises were still in play for them. And they saw Jacob on his deathbed clinging to these promises, to his dying breath. And they would say, listen, if we are going to make it to the promised land, we too need to hold on to that. And as we know the story of the Israelites, some of them, some of them did, some of them didn't. Joshua and Caleb hung on to the promises. 
but the rest of them didn't. The rest of them in that first generation that escaped out of slavery in Egypt, they, they took the word of the spies who went into the land who said, hey, there's, there's giants there. We, we can't go there. There's, there's giants in that land. It's too hard. It's too overwhelming. It's too difficult. And Jacob and, and Caleb, or Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, there are giants there. But God gave us promises. God gave us promises and says he will be with us and he will give this land to us. And so there were many who didn't believe those promises. There were some, the remnant, who did believe those promises. And so that, that this would have been a, a huge deal to them as they saw Jacob recalling these covenant promises, that we need to hang on to these promises. We need to hold to them with a sincere and robust faith and belief. And so that's where we need to begin our application of the text as well. You see, these promises, these covenant promises that were given to Jacob at Bethel were the very substance of his faith. His faith was in God. His faith was in, as he said, God Almighty. In Hebrew, it's El Shaddai, the the Almighty, the all-powerful God. His faith is in God, but the substance of his faith, the material of his faith, were these covenant promises of blessing that God gave him at Bethel. You see, for Jacob, it all came down to those covenant promises that God gave him on that night in which he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Now, this wasn't the first time that God had given Jacob these promises. He had given these very same promises a little over 20 years earlier. As he was just leaving Canaan Canaan, on his way to Paddan Aram to look for a wife. Escaping from the revenge of his brother Esau. He's leaving. And as he's leaving, he, he goes to Luz, which is Bethel. And he falls asleep. He has this dream. Remember the angels ascending and descending. The Lord appears to him in that dream. And he gives them these very same promises. And so fast forward 20 years or so, he comes back to Bethel after being in exile. And God reiterates these promises again. But this time, he believes them. This time, he has faith in them. In the ensuing years... God has used the complexities and difficulties of life to prove to him that he is a faithful and trustworthy God. Through Laban's deceptions, through the strife of his wives in his home, through the threat of Esau's revenge, even through a night of wrestling with God himself. God has used all of this over the ensuing 20 years to prove to Jacob that he was a faithful God who could be trusted. And so, as he reiterates these promises 20 years later at Bethel again, this time Jacob believes him. But now in chapter 48, now we are decades later. Nearly a hundred years later. And Jacob is still recalling these promises that God gave him. He had seen over those decades God continue to prove himself to be faithful and trustworthy. And so these promises are still the very substance of his faith. Even as he is on his deathbed, till his dying breath, he is clinging to these promises. Church Jacob had the kind of mature faith that I hope I would have at 54, much less 147. 
The main teaching point, the main takeaway from this chapter, I want to go ahead and give it to you now and, and then flesh out its parts. The main takeaway from this chapter is that a mature faith trusts in God's promises and in God's sovereignty. A mature faith trusts in God's promises and in God's sovereignty. And we see that kind of faith in Jacob here because he's trusting in God's promises to the very end. God's promise of blessing to Jacob and his offspring was the very substance of his faith. It was the thing hoped for of which he was assured. He was, it was the thing not seen because he didn't see it. He didn't see how it would all happen. It was the thing not seen of which he was convinced was a certainty. And even on his deathbed, he's clinging to these promises. May that be said of us one day, church. Clinging to these promises to our dying breath. You know, God's word is filled with his promises to us. His word is filled with promises to those who are his by faith, who have, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and what he, have finished, what, what he accomplished on the cross as our only hope to be rescued from what we deserve. Those who come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope, God has given to them, to us, many promises in Scripture. He promises to rescue us from judgment. He, he promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to prepare for us an eternal home. And then he promises that he will come and bring us back so that we could go to that home. We have the promise of the resurrection. Which means we have the promise of our resurrection. A a new heavenly body. We have the promise that one day sin and Satan will finally and completely and ultimately and utterly be destroyed. We have the promise of eternal life and glory through faith in Jesus Christ. At Christmas, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the first advent, the first coming of the Messiah, that is both a fulfillment of a promise as well as a promise in and of itself. Because the first advent is a promise that there is a second advent, a second coming of the Christ that we look forward to. And church, these promises, are the very, they're the very substance of our faith, the very, very material of our faith. They are what we hold on to. They are what we believe when it seems like everything else is falling apart, when it seems like life is out of control, or at least out of our control, like the year 2020. In times like this, no matter what's going on, God has promised us that Though we are not in control, he is. And we quote Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But let us not forget how the Apostle Paul begins that verse. He says, and we know, we know this. We, We have faith in this. We believe this to our very core. It's important that he prefaces that important statement about God's sovereignty with the fact that we know this, we're convinced that we have faith in this. That God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So no no matter what is happening, no matter how much out of control life seems, we can know, because God has promised this to us, that everything that is happening is according to his design. 
And ultimately, though, though we can't see how A connects to B, it's all happening for our good and for his glory. The promise of his sovereignty should be the anchor for our souls when the storms of life are raging all around us. Coupled with that, we have the promise of sanctification. Again, we quote Philippians 1, 6 rightly, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But let us not forget how that verse begins. Paul says, I am convinced of this. I'm convinced of this, he says. Do you hear that? It's not just important that we know this. It's important that we know this and believe this and trust this. He says, I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That no matter what happens, not only can we trust that God is in control, but we can also likewise trust that he is using that time, that instance, that scenario to conform us to the image of Christ for his glory. Why? Because it's a promise. And Paul says, I'm convinced of this. What I want us to see foundationally here is that all these are based on God's promises to us. And so the question for us this morning is, do we trust in God's promises? Do you trust in God's promises? Now you might ask, how do I know? How do I know if I'm trusting in God's promises? Well, that leads us to the second application of this text. You see, God's promises are not just given to us to make us feel better about the difficult times, to help us make it through our suffering. His promises also ought to have a bearing on how we live and how we act and what we do and what we live for and how we prepare for the future. They are to fuel our obedience and faithfulness to God. And that's what we see in this chapter. Jacob's adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh and his subsequent blessing of them was a demonstration of his faith in the promises of God. This is why he begins there. He begins by recalling Bethel, the covenant promises of God, and then he obeys and he adopts the two and he blesses the two. The writer of Hebrews tells us that's exactly what this is. In in the great hall of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the writer says, by faith, in verse 21, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, referring to Ephraim and Manasseh, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So this was by faith. This This was a demonstration of his faith. Him adopting the boys and blessing the boys. Why did he do it? It was a demonstration of his faith in God's promises. He was trusting in God's promises. And so he went forward with it. It was an evidence in his granting the birthright and the blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh. Again, let's go back to the Israelites wandering in the deserts 430 years later, hearing this story from Moses. They would have seen this. They knew about the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And they would have wondered, how did they get here? Because they weren't sons of Jacob, not to begin with. How did all that happen? And that's what Moses is answering here in this chapter. Now, I have to be honest with you and tell you that I don't really know how Ephraim and Manasseh being elevated to true sons of Israel is connected to the fulfillment of these covenant promises. I I don't know. I I don't know the connection there. I I just don't. Perhaps this was God reminding the Israelites and us subsequently of the real and dire consequences of sin and rebellion against God. 
by removing the firstborn nameplate from Reuben and Simeon and giving it to Ephraim and Manasseh. But that's just a guess. I really don't know. But regardless, providentially, God sovereignly chose Ephraim and Manasseh to be among the leaders of the tribes of Israel. But for Jacob, and this is, this is important for us to see, no matter what God's reasoning are, because we don't always know God's reasoning, in our life or in Jacob's, but for God, for, for Jacob, it all goes back to the promises. That's what he's basing it on. It's based on the covenant promises. He, he, he knows that these promises weren't given to him just to make him feel better about how, how he will endure the hard things of life. For Jacob, it all goes back to the promises. They are what fueled his obedience and his faithfulness to do what apparently God had asked him to do. Adopt the boys and bless the boys. What fueled his obedience was his unflinching faith in God's promises. And so these these covenant promises weren't just a feel-good for him. They, they, They weren't just to help him through the hard times that he experienced in life. They were meant to fuel his obedience and his faithfulness to God. And the same is true for us. Those promises from God that we hold dear, they help us through the hard times. Yes, they do. They help us endure times like the year 2020. But they're not just for the purpose of making us feel better about our suffering. They are that, but they are more than that. They also are meant to fuel us to obedience and faithfulness to our God. In other words, since these things are true, and since we believe them with all our hearts, then we ought to live differently. This is the essence of the Apostle Paul's letters, and almost all of them. How he writes them in the first half of his letters, he gives the doctrinal truths. And in the second half of his letters, he gives the moral and ethical implications of those truths. In other words, because these things are true, because we believe them, because we have faith that these things are true, now we live in this, we ought to live in this way as he writes. Even how he structures his letters, he's telling us that because these things are true, we ought to live this way. James puts it very simply, faith without works is dead. He says in his epistle, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And Jacob showed his faith by adopting Ephraim and Manasseh and extending the covenant blessings to them because that was what God wanted him to do. But what about you? What about you and I? How how is your faith, your, your belief in those beautiful promises of God that we mentioned earlier and so many others, How is your belief in the promises of God evidenced in your life? You know, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. Test yourself to examine yourself. What what evidence is there of your faith in these promises? If you examine yourself and you conclude there is no evidence whatsoever, then maybe there's no faith. And the answer for you is to trust in Christ as your only hope. Return to the cross. But maybe the answer for you is there's faith, but it's weak. You're like the man in the Gospels who says, I believe, Jesus, but help me in my unbelief. And if you find yourself weak in your faith in some area, struggling with obedience or struggling with faithfulness, then may I exhort you, go back to the promises of God and cling to those Believe those. 
they are not just lofty, flighty words. They are words of promise that God has given to us. And they are meant not only to sustain us in hard times, but they are meant to fuel our obedience and faithfulness to him. And then finally, the final application from this passage comes from that last part of the text where it seems like this blind old Jacob has just gone senile and he mixes up the two boys. Joseph places them before his father just as they're supposed to be blessed according to the tradition and cultural norms of that day. He, he puts um, Ephraim in his right hand lining up with his father's left hand. He puts Manasseh in his left hand lining up with his right hand. Because according to the cultural norms, the firstborn, Manasseh, was supposed to receive the blessing of the father with the right hand. So that's how he lines them up. And what does the father do? Boop. He crosses them over, right? And Jacob's like, no, dad, that's not right. Don't put your right hand on Ephraim. Manasseh is the firstborn. He, and it's almost like, dad, I know you can't see, but you put your right hand on the wrong one. How's Jacob respond? I know, son, I know. They're both going to be great nations, and they will. They'll both turn into a company of peoples. But Ephraim will more, and that actually plays out. The northern kingdom of Israel is almost predominantly the tribe of Ephraim one day. It's huge. You'll become a much greater company of nations and Ephraim, the younger, will be greater than the older, he says. So what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that God's sovereignty does not bow to our expectations. It was tradition that the eldest son was giving the blessing of the firstborn. But God's sovereignty trumps man's tradition and cultural norms and our expectations every time. When we might claim it's not fair... We might say, oh, we don't understand. Why? Why is that the case? What possible reason might God have for elevating Ephraim above his brother? And, and we're silent because we don't know. We don't know what God's reason was in that. All we know is that that is not what we expected him to do. And friends, such are the ways of God. His ways are not our ways. But as we've learned so often in these closing chapters of Genesis, God has a plan. And ultimately, as we've said, his plan is for our good and his glory. Even though we can't connect the dots between what's happening and either of those two things, it is true. He is sovereign and he is good. He is God Almighty. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. His ways are always perfect. His timing is always perfect. And he is not bound by time and space. And, and church, he is not bound by our wills and our traditions and our cultural norms and expectations. He has a plan. And it's good. And it will be accomplished in his perfect timing. And so a mature faith trusts in God's promises and trusts in God's sovereignty. So may the story of Jacob's life and the story of his deathbed lead us to trust in the promises of God to such a degree that they fuel our obedience and faithfulness to him. 
and that our trust in God's promises are not dampened in the least, not one iota, by our similarly confident trust in God's absolute sovereignty. As we close, there are two more promises that I want to leave with you. There are both good promises and there are bad promises. The good promises are promises of blessing and the bad promises are promises of cursing. Not cursing as in foul language, but cursing as in being cursed. The Bible tells us that we're all born under a curse, the curse of sin and death. And this curse means that once this life is over, we are promised judgment and punishment, that this is our just reward because of our sin against God. This is the curse that began in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and this is the curse that God sent Jesus to break. That's why we have Christmas, because God sent a Savior to break that curse. And through Jesus' sinless life, and because of his sacrificial death in our place, the curse of sin and death has been broken, but it's been broken only for those who repent of their sins and come to him in faith, trusting that what he accomplished on the cross is sufficient to pay for their sins. And so two more promises for you to wrestle with this morning. First, if you do not come to faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, then Scripture promises that when this life is over, you will meet your Maker and you will have to give an account for your life and you will get what we all deserve and suffer an eternal punishment. That's a bad promise. But then the second promise is that if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for rescue, or if you will come to him in faith this morning, then scripture promises that when your life is over, you will likewise come before your maker. But instead of pronouncing a curse on you, he will pronounce a blessing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And you will not get what you deserve, but you will get what you don't deserve, which is reconciliation with your father and sheer delight and everlasting joy and peace in his presence. The question is, which of those promises will you embrace? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, as we see 147-year-old Jacob on his deathbed, speaking his last words, clinging to your promises. Oh Lord, we want to be that. Sometimes we find it hard to cling to your promises even in our lives as we go about our daily business. And so Father, we ask for your help in that. We ask for your spirit to give us a greater confidence in your faithfulness and your trustworthy that the trustworthy of trustworthiness of your promises are predicated and founded on your character that you are a trustworthy god and so your promises are as if they are already fulfilled and so father we trust you that you're in control even though we don't understand we trust you 
that you're conforming us to the image of Christ, though it hurts. And we trust you that you will one day bring us home. In the meantime, Lord, build our faith in you so that you are glorified in us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.